good and gracious God, as we gather, we are encouraged that your spirit is with us. We are encouraged that your joy fills us up and overflows from our cup. Lord, continue to pour out upon us. But this morning, as we enter into your word, Lord, would you fill our hearts even more? Would you open our eyes to see and our ears to hear and our hearts to receive what it is that you are speaking to each and every one of us? For the word is powerful. And that's what we're going to hear about this morning, Lord, is just how good your word is and what it does to us the way that it acts through your Son, Jesus Christ. And so, Lord, lead us and guide us this morning. Make very little of me, but make very much of yourself. Humble us in your presence that you may be exalted more and more and more in our hearts. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, if you have been with us or if you're joining us for the first time, we are working our way through the book of Revelation. And if you're just joining us for the first time, don't worry, we haven't gotten too far. Uh, We're still in chapter two. Uh, So you've got plenty of space to still catch up. But uh, we're going to be in chapter two, uh, starting in verse 12 this morning. So if you have your Bible with you and you want to go ahead and open it up, or if you want to pull out the pew Bible to read along with us, uh, you can go ahead and open up to Revelation chapter two. But along the way, one of the things that I want to make certain that we do every week is that we read the scripture in full. Because we are reminded, as in verse 3 of chapter 1, that blessed is the one who reads and who hears the words of the prophecy and keep the things which are written in it. And so we want to be reminded that we aren't just reading this to read it, but we're reading it to receive blessing from God because we receive blessing when we live in obedience to the things that he said. And the thing that we keep coming back to over and over and over again as a part of our church is that we are to love, trust, and obey. The more that we encounter the love of Christ, the more we can trust him, and the more we trust him, the more obedient we become to his word. And I believe that Revelation is the book that reveals his love, trust, and obedience more than most books do, although all do. But Revelation in particular lays it out so clear, this image of Jesus. But before we get into our passage this morning, I just want to start by saying I know that it can be really hard sometimes to look at the world around us and look at society, to look at even to some extent our government and wonder what in the world is going on. And I'm not making a political statement. I'm making a statement just about the general direction that everything seems to be going, and it's getting further and further away from Jesus. Whether you stand on the left or the right, you can see it in both areas of life. You can see it in all of society, and it can be incredibly discouraging. It can be incredibly overwhelming. And you can start to see how maybe some of those things can start wheedling their way into the church. And this church then starts making compromises 
about the core truths of the gospel. And as we turn to Revelation chapter 2, verse 12 this morning, I believe that is what this letter is addressing. It's addressing a world and a society, in Pergamum in particular, where the church got caught up in the world rather than distinguishing themselves from it. And so let us read this passage this morning from chapter 2, starting in verse 12 through 17. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, This is what the one who has the sharp, two-edged sword says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, and you hold fast. My name, and did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you, that you have, been, you have there some who hold the teaching of Balaam, who kept teaching Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel, to eat things sacrificed to idols and to commit sexual immorality. So you also have some who in the same way hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Therefore repent. But if not, I am coming to you quickly, and I will make war against them with the sword of my mouth, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone and a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. As we open up this passage today, it can be a little alarming. You can read it and you can think, is this talking about us? Is this our church? Have we been this in any way, shape, or form? Have I lived into any of these things? Am I one of the ones in the church that have compromised my belief or my faith? Well, what I want to first point to before we even get into any of that is the image of Jesus that is portrayed at the very beginning of the text. In each of the letters, we see who Jesus is to that church and why it is important is uncovered as we read the rest of the letter. And what we see in verse 12 is that this is what the one who has the sharp two-edged sword says. When you hear that language, two-edged sword, I don't know about you, but I'm taken to one scripture. One scripture very much in particular, and maybe you've heard it before, but it comes from Hebrews chapter 12. For the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword. And piercing as far as the vision of soul and spirit of both joints and marrow and able to judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The word of God is like a two-edged sword. Both cutting and healing, both breaking and mending. Jesus is the one who has that sharp two-edged sword. Jesus is also referred to in John 1.1 as the Word of God. He is the Logos. He is all 
human reason combined. He is perfection in wisdom and knowledge and truth. This is who Jesus is. And he comes with that sharp two-edged sword. He comes with the word. The very words of his mouth should in some way cut us. They should reveal to us something that maybe needs to be worked out within us. In Hebrews, it tells us that it cuts through soul and spirit, through joint and marrow, and it is able to judge the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. There is but one who can judge the thoughts and intentions of the heart, and his name is Jesus. Let me be clear We don't read these letters to cast judgment on one another. We don't read these letters to cast judgment on another church and our community. We don't read these letters to say, oh, well, I see this over here, and I see this over there, and I see that right here, and I see them doing this, and I see them doing that, and they don't have this right, and they don't have that right. We don't do that. When we read these, we read these as if Jesus is speaking to us. And as we pick up the word of God, we pick up the word of God as if Jesus in his word is speaking to us. And so the intention as we read this letter is to say, how, what does this mean for us? And what does this mean for me? And as I encounter the one who brings the word of God to me, am I willing to humble myself and receive it Or do I hear it and I push back because I don't want to believe that he has something to tell me? And in Pergamum, which is the capital of Asia Minor in Rome, in the Roman Empire, is this place where city government, where the governmental system was lordship. In fact, it's funny because Pergamum actually means thoroughly married. The people were thoroughly married to the city. They were thoroughly married to the government. They were thoroughly married to nationalism. They were thoroughly married to pagan worship, to idol worship, to the gods, to Caesar, to governors, to senators, to governmental authority. They were thoroughly married to it. And I find it interesting that they counted the government's word as law, and here Jesus is presenting himself to the church in Pergamum saying, they believe, but you are to believe that there is one greater who comes with a word that is greater, a word that is stronger, a word that is sharper than any two-edged sword. And that's important to recognize because to rule in Rome meant to rule with the sword. But Jesus' sword is sharper, greater, better, but it's infinitely different. Jesus' sword is not meant as one to take off one's head, it is meant as one to redeem and to bring back into right relationship with him. The word of God has the 
entire purpose of revealing the plan of God to his people. The way of redemption, the way of relationship, the way of being a citizen of his kingdom and his power, not to the power and principalities of the world. And so that's where we start. When the people read this letter in Pergamum, the first thing they are struck by is this amazing sovereign authority and ruling power of Jesus Christ. And then he goes on and he says to them in verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And you hold fast my name and did not deny my faith even in the days of Antipas, my witness, my faithful one who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Might I make a suggestion? When you are working on calling somebody out, begin by giving them an encouragement. Your faithfulness. I see where you dwell. I see where you are standing. You are sitting literally in the place where Satan's throne is. First of all, what an indictment of Pergamum. I mean, I wouldn't want to be that city right now, living in that city and to hear that this is where Satan's throne is. Because we have to remember that Satan works in the world. He works in the ways of the world. And he wants to create compromise in the world. And he wants to lure people away from the kingdom of heaven. And so to call a city the place where Satan's throne is means that they are a city where people have chosen the way of the world over the way of Jesus, over the way of Yahweh, over the way of God. And let it be encouraging to us because it can be hard as Christians to live in a world where persecution is real. And it might not be here to the extent yet, but statistics show that of all the world religions, the most persecuted is Christianity. Of all the deaths that occur due to religion, 90% of them are Christian. It is the most heavily persecuted faith in the world. And here we are in America where we don't suffer persecution to death. We suffer persecution through a much more underhanded scheme of the enemy working in society the way that he was working in Pergamum. We really only have the testimony of a single martyr in Pergamum, not multiple, but single with Antipas and how he was a good martyr, a faithful one, killed among them where Satan dwells. But here's what I want us to remember. Satan may dwell in the world. He may dwell in societies. He may dwell in cities. He may dwell in governments and systems. But the one who dwells in you is greater than the one who is in the world. The one who dwells in you is the Spirit of God, is Jesus Christ. He has made his dwelling place 
within you. In fact, I love in Ephesians chapter 3, verses 14 through 20. We've read this before, but it's the prayer that Paul lifts up for Ephesus. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that he would give you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with power through his Spirit in the inner man, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being firmly rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge, and that you may be filled up to all fullness of God. What a prayer. What an encouragement. And what we are reading in this letter to Pergamum is that their faithfulness was strong. That Christ did dwell within them and that they had a faith. They wanted to stand on the firm truth of faith in Christ. But there was an issue that ended up popping up in the church within a few. But he says, but this I have against you, that there are some that hold the teaching of Balaam. What is the teaching of Balaam? Well, I'm sure many of us growing up in Sunday school might remember the story of Balaam's donkey and how Balaam uh, was being summoned by Balak to come and to curse the Israelites so that Balak might be able to push them out of the land. Well, Balaam went to God and God said, you are not to go to Balak. Well, then Balak sent another uh, envoy to come and bring Balaam to him to curse Israel. And Balaam went back to God, and God said, well, you can go with them, but you have to tell them my words. And Balaam's like, okay. And then he went, and God's anger was kindled against Balaam because he went, because God had already told him the first time, I told you not to go. My words should have been true the first time I told you. But I relented, I'm sending you. And so he gets on his donkey and he's going to meet Balak. And then the donkey stops and goes a different way because the donkey's eyes are open to see this angel of the Lord with a sword in his hand, ready to kill Balaam for what he's about to do. And the donkey keep doing, do, keeps going all these ways and avoiding the angel. And then Balaam finally is like, What are you doing, donkey? Kind of reminds me of Shrek. What are you doing? But anyway, so you've got this donkey, and, and then the donkey's mouth opens, and he talks to him. And he's like, have I ever steered you wrong? And Balaam's like, well, no. And he's like, well, don't you think there might be a reason? And Balaam's like, well, maybe. And then Balaam's eyes are open, and he sees this giant angel. He's like, oh, my goodness, you were trying to save me. But so what is the, so I'm getting, I'm getting a little off track. I just, I love the story about Balaam's donkey. But what was Balaam's teaching? What was the issue? Well, if you read chapters 22 through 25, you end up seeing that Balaam went and he kept giving blessing to Israel instead of cursing him. And Balak was getting frustrated. And so eventually, after blessing Israel three times, Balak is like, we're done. I'm not doing this anymore. But then you turn the chapter and you read that Israel turns away from Yahweh. And you're like, huh? 
I'm so confused. Balaam just blessed Israel three times, and now they're turning away. How did they end up turning away from God? Well, Numbers chapter 31, verse 16 gives us the answer. It says this, Behold, these, so these things, caused the sons of Israel through the word of Balaam to act unfaithfully against Yahweh in the matter of Peor. So the plague was among the congregation of Yahweh. So Balaam wasn't able to curse Israel. But what he did is he taught Balak how he might lead Israel astray. He taught them how he might be able to get them to eat sacrifices to idols and sleep with pagan women and work in the way of cult prostitution and following Baal. That's what happened. And so when we read this, what we read is this is what I have against you. There are some of you who are compromising the truth of the gospel so that they might look better to others, so that they might be more appealing to other people, so that what looks like tolerance and acceptance and love is really turning away from the very things that I told you are abhorrent to me. There's this saying that one generation tolerates it, the next generation accepts it, then the next generation will celebrate it. And it's very easy to see in the world around us how it has gone from tolerance to acceptance to celebration in all kinds of different sin. I'm not trying to call out any single sin, but I remember, I don't remember, but I remember reading history because I wasn't born yet. I remember reading history when there was a time when divorce was illegal. Adultery was illegal. And then they laxed adultery, so it was no longer, you know, something that you could sue somebody over. And then eventually, we live in a society today where hookup culture is celebrated. Where having as many sexual partners is a good thing. It went from not accepted to tolerated to accepted to celebrated. The enemy is working in, his, in the church of God as well so that our truths and faiths and values will be compromised. And he does it by first starting in the world and in society and then pressuring the church to change its ways. And I'm not saying that that's happening in this church, but I'm saying that it could and I'm saying that there might be the possibility that we're starting to maybe feel a little bit of the pressure of the outside world. The question is, will we be like the church in Pergamum and receive it and accept it and tolerate it and then celebrate it? Or will we be like the church that Jesus is calling us to be to say, wait, something's going on here. 
Because he goes on to start saying, there are some of you in the same way in verse 15 who hold to the teachings of the Nicolaitans. And we don't really know fully who the Nicolaitans are and what they were teaching. What we do know is that there's a close relationship between the Nicolaitans and worship of state to nationalism to saying that I care more about my country than I do about my faith. And when that starts working its way into your heart, then you compromise the truths of Jesus for the truths of the world. In fact, if you turn to James chapter 4, we see in James 4.4 this, you adulteresses, Do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world sets himself as an enemy of God. That's harsh. But the problem is when you set yourself as a friend of the world, what you end up doing is you compromise your faith. You compromise your truth. You compromise your values. And I'm not saying that it's, it's bad to love your country. I'm not saying it's bad to love the freedoms that we have been afforded here. What I'm saying is if that takes precedent over your affiliation with the kingdom of heaven, then we have to have a conversation. Because Jesus should never be superseded by worldly things. He's so much better. He's so much greater. His word is like a sharp two-edged sword. And it is sharper. And so if you fear the world, I encourage you maybe to set a little fear in your heart for God. But how do we do that? I believe the answer really falls in Jesus' commendation, not condemnation, his commendation of them. Because they were faithful. It's a faithfulness that helps push back against the powers and principalities of darkness. Remember in Ephesians 6.6 where he tells us to put on the whole armor of God? Well, most of the things that we pick up are defensive But there's one thing that we can pick up that's offensive, and what is it? The sword of the Spirit, right? And what is the sword of the Spirit? The Word of God. The Word of God. It's faithfulness in His good truth that helps us push back. It's faithfulness in what He has said, what He has done, what He is doing, and what He will do. Even as we read Revelation, understanding the future things. This is what helps us push back against the world when the world comes knocking on our door and says, well, I want you to follow this way. I think Paul says it best in Romans 12 too, do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may approve what the will of God is, that which is good and pleasing and perfect. The will of God. Be transformed so that you might know the will of God. Well, how do you be transformed? I know this is coming up over and over and over again, and I keep talking about it over and over and over again, but I believe it to be true. 
Just this morning, our call to worship was from Psalm 37. In verse 4 says what? Delight yourself in the world and he will give you the desires of your heart. You can also understand desires as the will of your heart. Well, is it your will or is setting your desires and your delight in God actually him giving you his will? And you being able to live out his will in the world. And so how do you be transformed? Delight in Jesus. Encounter Jesus. Love Jesus. I'll say it over and over and over again. Love, trust, obey. The more you encounter the love of Christ, the more you trust him and believe in him, the more you conform to obedience in his name. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you his desires in your heart. Delight yourself in the Lord and you will be transformed in the renewing of your mind so that you may understand what God's will is. Delight yourself in the world. And so when the world is pushing against you, sorry, I think I said delight yourself in the world. Delight yourself in the Lord. (laughs) And when the world is pushing against you, you can push back. Because no longer do you think that the world is the best thing that you could receive. God is the best thing that you could receive. And so how do we continue down this path? He calls us to repentance. You know, I think that repentance oftentimes we think of it as condemnation. I repent because I feel condemned. But the reality is we repent because we understand his kindness. And it's his kindness to forgive, his kindness to bestow grace, to bestow mercy, to walk with us in our brokenness, to walk with us when we feel hurt and down, to walk with us when we feel like the world is against us, to walk with us when it feels like every bit of evil is just overshadowing. But we're in the shadow of his wing, not the enemy's. And so when the enemy tries to oppress us, it's just Jesus. He's like, come closer. Come closer. Repent. If there's anything that maybe you're believing that you shouldn't believe, it's okay. Repent. And repentance is not just saying I'm sorry. Repentance is saying no more. It comes from the same Greek word as metamorphosis, metanoia. It means to change, to turn 180, to turn your back on what was and move forward in a new direction. Repent. In fact, repent is kind of like a primary theme of revelation because it's in the place of repentance that we really do encounter the love of God. We encounter his kindness, his faithfulness towards us, that steadfast love, the rock, our salvation. It's in repentance that we actually see the fullness of God's goodness because repentance means that we can actually repent and be forgiven. If he didn't call us to repent, then it would mean that repentance isn't available. But it is. And it's good. And when we repent, the good news is that he will not come to us and make war against. Let me be clear. This says against them not against you. He's not making war against his church. But he is going to make war against those who are in the church that are abiding to the world 
instead of abiding to Christ. Jesus wholeheartedly wants you. In fact, he wants you so bad that he's actually telling his churches and the people in those churches to repent and turn to him so he doesn't have to come against them. He wants you. He wants you to be a part of his kingdom. He wants you to be a part of his church and his body. But be clear, he will cut you off if you compromise his truth. But he's not coming against his churches. He's coming against those in the church that are compromising. Let's not compromise and let's call our brothers and sisters that we see in ways of compromise, let's call them back lovingly to Jesus. Let's call them to repentance because here's the good thing, and this is where I want to end because I'm getting a little long, but this is what I love. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, to him I will give some of the manna in heaven, the hidden manna. Man, hungry people, stay hungry. Be ready to eat from the bread of life. And I will give him a white stone. And it's not really clear what the white stone is. Scholars have debated about it for a very long time. So we're going to skip that part. (laughs) And a new name written on the stone which no one knows but he who receives it. I want to focus on this for a second. And I'm not going to talk about what scholars say. I'm going to talk about the way that Jesus spoke to me about that. Be in a friendship with Jesus that's so deep that he shares his secrets with you. Let me me put it this way. I love, when I was a kid, my best friend, we had our secrets. We had our secret handshake. We had our secret passwords for the forts that we built out in the woods. We had our secrets. That was the rock, the, the foundation of what it meant to be friends with another person when I was 8, 9, 10 years old. We had secrets between just us. Secrets strengthen the bonds of friendship. Be in a childlike friendship with Jesus that's so deep that he wants to give you the stone on which no one knows the name but the one who gets it. Jesus wants to share his secrets with you. And if you want to know how to push back against the world and the powers and the principalities of darkness, delight yourself in the secrets he shares. Delight yourselves in the gospels, in the truth, in his way, because There's one thing that I do remember from, well, I remember a lot, but (laughs) from the parables. When Jesus was telling a parable, there were some that didn't get it, and there were some that did. And when the disciples asked Jesus about why there were some that understood and some that didn't, then he said it's because there were those who should have what? The ears to hear. And how has he ended these letters? He who has an ear. Let him hear. Listen for the voice of God in your life and let Jesus share his secrets with you. And then we will not be conformed to the world, but we will be transformed by the renewing of our minds to know the perfect will of God. And may we be filled with joy because of it. Let's pray. Good and gracious God, uh, you are good.
you are lovely and you are kind and you call us to repentance. You call us to push back against the oppressive powers of the world, the ways of society, and to live for you the truth and the faithfulness of who you are. We love you, Lord. Amen.